doing business in Europe or international can often be a completely different model and way of working than it is over in the US. You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Mottier, and I am here today with Matt Smith from Acumin. How are you today, Matt? Uh, very well and very warm today. <laughs> it is really warm. That's true. So, Matt, today we, we wanted to invite you to the podcast to discuss about building up a startup commercial team in the EMEA market for international vendors. And I know that your vendors will probably, most of them be US-based, some, some of them Israeli-based, some of them from other countries, but it's all about coming to the EMEA market. Mm. But, but before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and, 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 and Acumin, which is the, the company that you represent? Yeah, so I've been with Acumin, it was my five years anniversary, actually, at the beginning of last week. So I've been, I've been with Acumin for five years, but I've been within the cybersecurity recruitment world for eight years. So obviously, I've seen the industry uh, change and evolve and, and I've seen a number of US and, as you say, Israeli and European clients, you know, enter, build and scale across Europe. Some of the, do it, some, some of the companies do it very well. Others don't, but as a bit of background, I work for Acumin Consulting, and we're a cybersecurity-specific recruitment business. We have actually been going. I I certainly haven't been here for that long, but we were set up. It was our twentieth anniversary this year at Infosec, and we we cover the full paradigm of security. So we have a team that covers end users. So we do a lot of technical recruitment, i.e., CISO, security architects, security managers. For very large end user associations, so Betfair, Visa Europe, those sort of companies. We have a team that covers system integrators and consultancies. So we've placed partners with Deloitte, KPMG, you know, some of the traditional big four consulting firms, and that's all the way down to working with penetration testing companies or whatever the kind of flavor of the day is in the consultancy market. And also, I sit on the vendor team, so. I lead a lot of our VP or director level searches, but also specialize in helping startups enter, build, and scale throughout Amir. Yes, so that's, that's Acumen. That's, that's really useful. Thank you very much, Matt. So just to, to dive straight into the topic of today, we know that there is many uh, US or Israeli or startups in general that are looking at ex- expanding in the European market and setting up their initial sales team or having that commercial element right is, is obviously very important for them. So from your experience, what do you believe are the key elements for a successful expansion? So I think one of the key things to begin with is market timing. And I think if you look at certain areas, i.e. the, the CASB space within cyber, so, so general cloud security, The normal bit is I think the European market is probably generally 12 to 18 months behind the US market. And then APAC is normally six months or so behind the European market in terms of adoption. But I think one of the real key things that vendors have to fully qualify is the appetite and opportunity for their product in the market right at that time. Because I'm sure we will cover some of these points further in the conversation. But 
often uh, US vet, particularly US vendors, those of which have very little or traditionally have done very little work internationally or in Europe, often vastly overestimate a not, not so much the opportunity, but more so what's achievable and, and what the market is actually buying. And also, and I think also often they sometimes count Europe as just another sales region in the US, and as I'm sure we can cover later on, doing business in Europe or international can often be a completely different model and way of working than it is over in the US. So I think one of the first points is is market readiness. Yeah. And I think, I think you are right. We actually had a podcast recently with, uh, with a company called CBG and with their CEO, with a gentleman called Jamie Murphy. And uh, we spoke about one of their services, which is a, a service called uh, Pulse. And the purpose of that service is to actually, I guess, address that first point that you mentioned, that, that market readiness and, and taking the product, the solutions, the conversation to the end users, to the channel, and see how people react to it, to see the appetite. And I agree with you. I mean, if there is no market, what's the point? And I also agree with that other region. Obviously, I'm French, you're British, and I'm pretty sure that our way of buying things are culturally, I mean, I've been living in England long enough now to, to be a bit more with the, the British culture. But I remember when I first arrived in the UK, realizing that things are very different. The way people do business, the way I was expecting things to happen, Despite the fact that I was just living across the across the sea from you guys, it was a big, big shock for me. I think that's something that sometimes vendors don't appreciate, that the, the cultural difference. First, I was going to say, are you French? I hadn't noticed. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I'm trying to pull my best. <laughs> Trust me. I'm, yeah. But, yeah. But no, I mean, I think if we go back to, I mean, even if you don't look at cloud security, you look at general adoption of cloud services globally and, and I think definitely not you know definitely one of one of the first failures or reasons why international expansion can cannot go wrong is absolutely looking at the European market and I think there's kind of two, there's two or three things is that you have the difference in how you do business in the US to expanding international but then quite clearly as you said when you actually look into Europe and I think again one of the generalizations is that often the U.S. vendors can look at Europe as just one region when, when you actually look into it, and, and as you correctly state with your own personal experiences, you know, there's a wildly different way of doing business in the U.K. to Germany to, to France or Southern Europe to Northern Europe to Benelux to the Middle East. And I think that's, you know, what, A, treating all of those regions exactly the same can often prove, you know, very difficult because I think particularly if you look just high level, you know, the way that you do the business in Middle East is that they're very much, it can be difficult to penetrate uh, and win new business in the Middle East. However, when you have very strong relationships with partners, with customers in the region, you really take on more of a trusted advisor piece. Whereas if you flip back to, I imagine, probably from... I mean, I think in terms of being one of the potential biggest markets, but also by quite some distance, one of the most difficult to do business in would be Germany. Because if you look, they're obviously a huge economy. There's enormous potential market. There's there's enormous market potential in the region. However, anybody that has recruited, sold, operated in Germany will say that it is 
a very, you know, it's a very different and albeit kind of unique culture, even within Europe. And, you know, some of the stereotypes about Germans, i.e., being, you know, often they are one of the one of the last markets to adopt new technologies. So as a result, it can be very difficult to to hire or to sell new technologies over there because generally they are one of the later adopters. And, and, and if we go back to the point about cloud and about cloud security, in particular, the German market have huge concerns about privacy. They have enormous concerns over where data is stored. And, and, and one of the key pieces that a lot of the successful, a lot of the successful US vendors that come over, and, and particularly where data, well, where they're a cloud vendor, essentially, where data has to be stored in the cloud and sent back to the US, often there'll be a number of these vendors that will have to physically build data centers in Germany to be able to get around, to be able to get around some of the kind of restrictions and, and some of the reasons why cloud has been slow to adopt, particularly in Germany. But I think, if, again, if you use Germany as an example, so much about a successful international expansion, and it goes back to, to the key bit, is, is firstly hiring the right person. And I think so much of it, if you get a, a US vendor that's a startup that hasn't done any business in Europe before, it's very important that, A, they hire the right person, and we can come on later on to what characteristics that person has. But one of the real key parts, and I say this during a lot of leadership searches, a real undervalue is the ability to manage and influence up. So obviously, you get first people on the ground or VP of Europe who are used to building and leading teams beneath them. But so much of it, surely, when you're going into a new region, is about managing the expectations of the U.S. vendor. And, and, and I think so often, and it goes back again probably into linking with the point about market, you know, market adoption and market potential, is having a European leader in place that can successfully manage expectations of the U.S. in terms of what's actually going to be achievable. And I think sometimes U.S. vendors can, or any vendors, can be bowled in by a sales guy or girl who throughout the interview process may say they can scale or achieve 30 40% higher revenues than some of the other people in the process. But I think it's really about not just taking the person who commits to generating the bigger number, but taking somebody who's been through the journey before and can actually give realistic numbers in terms of what they can achieve. And I think so much being able to, A, manage the expectations above and, and also managing the team below really helps de-risk it because often so many vendors, because I think if you, know, if you commit a number, as you well know, vendors take that as written in blood and that's what's going to be achieved. And I definitely think having somebody that has got the level of seniority to be able to manage upwards, but also still has enough uh, kind of irons in the fire and feet on the street to be able to go out and sell is critical. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So if, if I was to summarize a bit a few things here, fundamental key elements for suspension. Number one is the timing. Is the market ready for you? Yeah. Number two would be about embracing and understanding the cultural differences and not expecting yeah. to just replicate whatever was a success in Israel or yeah. in North America or in Latin yeah. America where, where you're actually from and where is your local market. And number three around, I guess, that first person on the ground. And, and I think there is, I also want to put a number four points, which is not being... Yeah too naive or over-enthusiastic and having the yeah, right yeah. expectations. Because I think you're right, those expectations 
would also come from that first person that you hire, but it oh, will also sure. come from the vendors. Those two needs to agree on what is realistic. And, and obviously, put themselves on, under a bit of pressure is good, but you want to make sure that if you work with someone who's already done it in the past, you've got expectations from a board or from investors or from a, from a, from a company CEO perspective. It's about matching them to make sure that there is a plan that can actually be achieved. Is that the four points that you, you, you wanted to put across? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Because I think one, uh, I mean, I definitely think if you look, there's this, I mean, and I'm not sure if, if, we're gonna, if you want me to cover this now or, or cover this later on in the conversation. But again, so much is critical about that first hire. And, 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 and there's a lot of characteristics. But well, that's, that that's actually my next question, Matt. So I'm, okay. I'm glad you, you bring it back up because that's a fantastic bridge. <laughs> question, and then maybe I will help you with, with what I'm after here, but we are having a ton of conversation with individuals that are looking at recruiting that first person on the ground. And I think you are absolutely spot on when you say this is, this is critical. That first person will drive, that first person will attract, that first person is almost like a, a Swiss army knife. Someone who needs to be able to wear different hats, but also someone will be able to you know, pull up their sleeve to get the job done if needs be, as well as recruiting, selling, getting involved with technical issues, all that sort of great stuff. So based on your experience and when it comes to you supporting your clients in identifying that first person on the ground, what are the, the key skills that you are looking after or, or what are the key skills that you think vendors should be looking after? So, I mean, I think... You know, generally, if you're the first hire in, and again, just for the purposes of of this conversation, let's keep using a US vendor as an example, but obviously it's slightly different if it's European or Israeli. But if you're setting up a region, if if you're the first hire in a region anywhere, but let's say Europe, it's obviously very key. I mean, because often vendors make the mistake of hiring you know, a sales leader that comes from a more established vendor, even within their space. So I guess if we, if we use endpoint security as an example, you know, that... Market, isn't it? With vendors coming over the last few years, yeah. that market in particular. And lots of yeah. investments, lots of investment yeah. from VCs as well. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think on both points. So if you have, I guess, the more old school endpoint vendors, so Symantec, McAfee, Trend Micro, those sort of companies that are all public companies, you know, employ thousands of people, generate hundreds and hundreds of millions of revenue. You then have a lot of these new endpoint vendors that would look to displace some of the larger players. Uh, So as a result, you would think it would be natural to go and headhunt for the first salesperson in the region to go and head to somebody very senior from, from, from those organi- from, the, from the more legacy organizations. And without a shadow of a doubt, there's a lot of very capable people in, in larger organizations. However, if you look at it holistically, somebody who's ahead of Europe or in a senior sales position for a company that might have four, five, six, seven hundred people in Europe, Firstly, they'll be very, they're very likely to be completely removed from the coalface. So they're not going to be on the street selling. They're not going to be on the phone to customers all day, every day. They may well have the infrastructure and have managed very, very large PS, um, very, very large P&Ls and have, have, a, have a lot of very good experience in terms of senior people leadership. However, when a vendor first comes over, and I think actually separating the two, you made a good point that 
probably two years ago, again, focusing on, on the endpoint market, there was a number of vendors, all with hundreds of millions of, of, of funding. So when they first come to Europe, they will typically hire a fairly senior VP of Europe. But that would be somebody that has worked for multiple startups before, somebody that's been through the journey, that understands what it takes to, what it takes to be successful. But I think more so if you fast forward it, because I think if you look at some of those vendors I just mentioned, they were coming over to Europe, they were hiring, you know, a very big hitting VP of Europe who would then hire senior pre-sales, senior marketing in the UK, then often look to go and put feet on the street very quickly in all of the regions. And whilst you still absolutely need people who have worked up in a startup environment, more so now, two years later, you're seeing a real reduction in the number of vendors that have such significant funding. So as a result, even though both of those types, i.e. ones with 200 million or ones with 10 million, both need to hire people that have the startup DNA and the startup characteristics, more so two years later after a lot of these companies come over, the first person on the ground needs somebody that is able to go out you know, and boot doors open, so to speak, you know, win the very first few accounts. Because often somebody from a much larger business, A, might not, you know, it might have been 10 or 15 years since they made 50, 60, 70 calls a day. And I think really getting somebody that understands what is needed and somebody really that has a proven track record of success working in a very similar environment and really, really key with little resource or budget. And that's why I think particularly from a resource perspective, generally, and, uh, and obviously this, is, uh, this isn't all, all, all encompassing, but generally the view is the people that have, have worked for very large vendors, even if they're in the same space, will not be used to operating with very little support, very little infrastructure and, and all that sort of thing. So I think so much of it relies on hiring people who, who have essentially built businesses from scratch before and understand everything that goes with that. But surely, Matt, there must be a shortage of these people at some points. Ah, there's, a very, there's very much a shortage of, <laughs> of yeah, people. So, I, because there is, there is more companies coming and actually people who've done it. And, and you would expect the people who have done it and who have done it well to probably stay in job with who they are, you know, I guess, you know, in a way. So is there, I guess... I'm about to ask you a question about how you find those people, but asking you maybe a less a less direct characteristic. Are you looking at someone who's been a very good salesperson that wants to take more responsibilities? Are you looking at someone, as you mentioned, someone who's been very very senior but is looking at getting more of a, an exciting startup job, and you know they will be working much more closer to the action, etc. Is there a profile? Is there, is there, is, is, do you do it with feelings or do you do it? A, how do you find the right profile? And, and what are the criteria that you think are, are important to have from a, from a people perspective, from a human skill perspective? So, I mean, from my perspective, you know, as, as you know, but essentially the viewers don't, I mean, I do kind of specialize in helping startups come over. So as a result, having ran multiple VP of Europe searches, having worked with many of the high-profile startups that have come over. I personally have a very good network of, of what you would class as startup guys and girls. But you know, you're absolutely right that so much of it depends on, and I think touching on some of the point 
of what we raised uh, in question one is that it's managing the expectation of the vendor. Because, say, for example, if you have, a, you know, or if you say, for, to keep using cloud security, if I'm working with a Series A, 10 or 15 million backed cloud security vendor, they might be at 50 or 60 people globally. You know, generally when companies start looking at Europe or international expansion, is often because they might have global clients. So, you know, some of the very large finance houses, for example, that they've sold into in the US been successful and they've essentially been dragged into Europe or international because some of their global clients are saying, well, hey, can we buy the solution over here? But as a result, if you've got a company that's only 50, 60 people globally, 10 or $15 million investment, what they need generally is generally a very high-performing individual contributor that wants to make a step up. Somebody that's worked in a very early stage company before, maybe has been sales hire two, three, four or five, has been really successful, has gone through the journey and now wants to take the step up and move into being that first hire in the region. And I think if you look at some of the companies that, that we've spoken about that have huge funding rounds, often they will probably go for the next level. So a VP of Europe that might have done two or three successful IPOs or acquisitions, somebody that's built a business from zero people to 30 or 40. But I think it's kind of interesting when you look at startups in general, because Whenever I'm talking to candidates and clients, and and I'm just using the numbers I speak about here just for illustration purposes, but if you look at revenues from a startup perspective in Europe, I always say you kind of have three stages. So you might have zero to five million or zero to 10 million, dependent on deal size, deal values, investment in the region, et cetera. But you might have one person that takes them from zero to 10 as a sales lead, Mm -hmm. that person is your typical kind of regional sales director that's hungry, that's aggressive, that will be able to, you know, boot doors down open, win a lot of the marquee early customers, because as you know, it can be extremely difficult to win those first few reference customers. They then build the business, they would either lead the business themselves and hire a a pre-sales person, a marketing person, etc. And then start expanding into the other territories, which might be DAC first, Benelux, Northern Europe, or, or however they want to run it. But then once they've got to that scale, is then once they've got to that size, it's then important to potentially bring in a more kind of commercially focused leader. And the reasons that I say that is, is often the first hire you make from a sales perspective, you know, they're hungry, they'll, they'll, they'll boot the doors down. However, they don't always have the processes and procedures that when you start getting to five or 10 million revenue that have to be put in, because obviously when you're only doing a small number of deals, you don't always necessarily have, you know, the best POC, you know, the POC is being run the best way or, or, even or the whatever. System, the system. Well, yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, or the yeah, scalability, I mean, basically. Yeah, exactly. And then I think you would generally get someone that would then come in and take them maybe from 10 to 30 or 40 million. And that would be stage two. And then often you get somebody who would come in maybe a year or two before IPO and would, or, or IPO or acquisition and, and, and take them through the rest of that journey. So I think often what you find is that there are right people for right times at yeah. vendors. And, and 
you do get some people who will be VP of Amir, will, will be the first sales hire in Europe and may still be there three years later when they're 50 people. However, they're fairly unusual because when companies have huge investment, they have to grow incredibly quickly. So as a result, that's why, I mean, I think particularly because there's been a lot of investment and there's been so many new companies coming over to market. In terms of that first sales hire or very early stage hires, whether it's sales, pre-sales, whatever, I think your average tenure of, of a sales director or VP of Europe at the moment is probably about 18 months, two years. Yep. So as you can see, companies go through a lot, of, uh, a lot of changes. So as a result, your average tenure of someone at these organizations is fairly short. And I think one of the natural things is, well, what can we do to try and get more longevity? And I think a lot of it does come back to, A, the whoever is in charge of the region being able to manage and build the region out underneath them. But again, it goes back to managing the expectations of the vendor above them, managing the expectations of the, of the more senior commercial guys over in the US. And I, but I definitely think due to the huge amount of investment, the, the industry as a whole has become very short term. And I think so much of that is, uh, and apologies if I'm going out off on a tangent side. No, it's useful. Let's I, it. Because I think really the, the way I look at it, that when I very first started working in, in cybersecurity seven or eight years ago, the perception of cyber was that it was a bit of a nerdy type area of the IT department. People kind of had half an understanding of, 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 um, of what it is and what it was there for. But it wasn't really a big thing. I mean, it sat along development in terms of, you know, the people that you keep locked under the stairs that just do coding and you bring them out for food and light occasionally. And I think so much, if you look at even the past 24 months, you've gone from this perception of security being a slightly nerdy technical small part of the IT department all of a sudden to influencing the U.S. election you know, be the, you know, there's huge geopolitical factors, you know, well, cyber, warfare, cyber warfare is being used country to country. And I think industry as a whole has become enormous, you know, so much more high profile than it used to. And I think one, and this is kind of a benefit and a negative, is the fact that traditionally when I first started looking at startups, you used to focus on looking who some of the, the well-known VCs, what companies they'd funded. So... Andreas and Horowitz, Bessemer Venture Partners, the more traditional VCs. But I think so much now, because cyber is so high profile, you've seen an absolute avalanche of investment from outside of the kind of core traditional VCs, which is no bad thing. But I think as a result, if you're working in an industry where seven or eight of the new entrants to market, again, if we use Endpoint as an example, 18 months, two years ago, if you're a startup, sales guy or sales girl or SE or marketing lead, if you've got six or seven vendors, all with exactly the same funding, all with very similar products, how are you expected to make a guess on who's going to be successful or not? And I think there's been, because there's been so much investment, the industry as a whole is inflated with too many vendors and, and dare I say it, too many recruiters and, and too many lead generation companies. There's too much PR. There's a million events, and I think the industry at the moment is just a bit bloated. And one of the things is that you are seeing and you will continue to see is hopefully, firstly, an increase in IPOs, because obviously that means the company has gone public and be successful. But as a result, you are also going to see a continued number of startups being acquired by, by some of the more larger legacy vendors that we've spoken about before, because generally large legacy vendors struggle to innovate 
um, and often Cisco and as example, often go on a big M&A thing to buy a large security capacity. And, and obviously, if a company gets acquired, it, it, it's a great thing, particularly for the early stage people. But, you know, if you look, if you've got a company that's got 100 million funding and it, get, it gets acquired for 700 million, then that's obviously a superb result. However, okay. if you're looking at a company that's got 100 million funding and they end up getting acquired for 80 million, then you don't have necessarily have to be the most forward-thinking finance analyst to understand that, that that's not that's a great result. Story. Yeah, absolutely. That was very useful, but I'm, I'm always associated with, uh, with a very passionate person or the image of a very passionate person with a funny accent. I'm glad I found you today because you're, I guess you are like me. It's fantastic. But, you know, I really appreciate all the time you, you gave us today. I mean, some of the insights you know, were probably going even further than what we were expecting from you today. But I like the way you speak about things. Your knowledge of the industry is absolutely is, is beautiful to, to listen to. Now, if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you and would like to take a conversation offline with you for, for any reason, pick your brain, maybe look at what your company could do for them or whatever, yes. what is the best way to get hold of Matt Smith? Well, they can either reach out to me. I mean, reach out to me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. It's, it's Matthew Smith Acumen Consulting, which uh, I'm obviously on LinkedIn a lot. But if anyone wants to reach out directly, uh, my email address is msmith at acumen.co.uk, but it's all on my LinkedIn profile. So okay. uh, if anybody has any further questions and queries, uh, yeah, please, please reach out. On- That's wonderful, Matt. Thank you again for your time today. Lots of insights. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, we'll make sure that we re-invite you very soon to, uh, to further on some of the conversation we had today on some of the, the key topics that you touched on. So thank you very much for your time, Matt. No problem. Look forward to the next one. Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.